Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see several guests in the chat room tonight, and you wish to participate in the chat, just sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on finding and understanding African North Americans, genealogy that cross the U.S.-Canada border from the Underground Railroad to the Homecoming Gathering. Dr. Adam Aronson is our special guest tonight, and he is an Associate Professor of History and the Director of the Urban Studies Program at Manhattan College. He is the author of the award-winning The Great Heart of the Republic, St. Louis and Cultural Civil War as well as co-editor of Civil War West, Testing the Limits of the United States and Frontier Cities, Encounters at the Crossroad of Empire. He is researching a book, and he has spoken and written about African North Americans crossing the U.S. border during and after the Civil War. He will discuss his ongoing research about African North Americans, as well as discuss how difficult it is to determine how many fugitive slaves and free blacks were in Canada, the history of the more than 600 African North Americans who returned to fight for the U.S. colored troops, the thousands more who returned to the United States in the decade that followed, the hundreds of men, women, and children who traveled north to Canada after emancipation, and even the reason Civil War records are filled with fake claims of Canadian and other citizenship. So this should be an exciting show for everyone. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Adam Aronson, to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Dr. Aronson. Thanks so much, Bernice. 
Well, thank you so much for tuning in and having everyone else tune in to hear what you have to share with us tonight. So before we even go any further, please define for us what you mean when you say African North Americans. Sure. So as I started this research, I felt like I find a number of people who their experience of crossing the border is really what helps define them as something different than the people around them. So these are people of African descent and that their lives are not completely in the United States and they're not completely in Canada or in British North America, as it was known before it was called Canada. And so I wanted to come up with a term that helped me think about how did their experience in both of these countries crossing that border their lives. Um, most of the people I'm looking at are living right around the time of the Civil War and emancipation, but I'm looking all the way up into the 1930s at people whose lives were being defined by crossing this border and becoming what I call African North Americans. Okay, so when we, we're talking now about African North Americans, I understand what you're speaking of. So let's kind of talk about approximately how many African North Americans, I mean, how, how many people are you talking about? There's, maybe we can just start there. Right, okay, so there have been lots of debates over how many uh, escaped slaves uh, were there in Canada at the time of the Civil War. This has been a big debate. You, you, have, you see people with very low numbers, like 8,000, 10,000, 12,000. You see people with very high numbers, like 60,000. Um, and there have been articles written about how difficult it is for us to know. Uh, there were census in the United States in 1860. There was a census in Canada in 1861. Um, but because of the, the gap between 1851 and 1861 um, in British North America and the difficulty in tracing people, it's been very hard to link up uh, individuals on both sides of the border at that time. So I'd say we're looking at probably around 30 to 45,000 people of African descent in Canada, um, you know, just as the Civil War is starting. But as my research is showing, um, by the time you reach 1890, 1900, you probably have around 10,000 more families that have made this crossing, either going from the United States into Canada or individuals who had lived their whole lives as African Canadians. Um, deciding to come into the United States, possibly in Detroit, possibly in Seattle. Um, and so the overall number is uh, hard to pin down, um, but you're probably mm -hmm. looking at something like, you know, 20,000 families around the Civil War and 10,000 families around the year 1900. So that could be anywhere up to about 50,000 people. Wow, I didn't realize it was that many people. But what what made Canada the destination point for free and enslaved people? So there have been people running away from slavery as long as there had been slavery in the United States. Um, people were mm -hmm. able to run to Mexico. People were able to run into the swamps of the South. Uh, people were able to run into the free communities of the North. But what changed uh, in the 1850s was the new free fugitive slave law, and then really the Dred Scott case in 1857. Uh, and that's in my first book in St. Louis, I was focused on um, the Dred Scott case as a key part of that book and thinking about how it changes the geography of slavery 
Um, one of the ways it does so is it tells people who thought they were going to be safe living in upstate New York or in Ohio or in Michigan, um, the, the Dred Scott case says there's really no such thing as part of the United States where slavery doesn't exist. And then you see a, a big influx in that late 1850 period of people going into Canada uh, to find their all-black communities in Canada as well as black uh, neighborhoods and black churches in large cities like Toronto. Um, and they're finding safety there, and then the Civil War begins to change the landscape again. Right. Well, that's that's interesting. So how many, and you, you've said it, I know you've said it, but I want you to repeat the number again. So how many traveled to Canada after the emancipation? So the number traveling after the emancipation is definitely smaller than before. Um, but mm -hmm. what you're seeing is you have a, a group that stayed in Canada, right? So maybe when you reach a census, like in 1871, you see maybe 10, 12,000 um, African Canadians. Those are people who had been originally from the United States, almost all of them, um, and that their families had stayed. But those same people in one or two generations later suddenly are finding reasons to move south to the other side of the Great Lakes. Um, and we can talk about some of those reasons. But similarly, you're finding people who, whether it's because of the KKK in the South or just because of uh, family ties or other opportunities, are actually moving into Canada. And I'd say in that period, you're looking at a few thousand. I mean, it's not a lot of people moving north. It's mostly people moving south, uh, back from Canada into the United States. Right. So I want to go back to some of the some of the things that you're going to, to talk to us about. So how difficult is it to determine just how many fugitive slaves and free blacks were in Canada? Um, it's, been, it's been hard. Um, part of it is that the Canadian census doesn't always um, mark people by race in the same way that the United States census did. Uh, so you have to find other ways of doing it. You, for example, if you found someone who was born in the United States seeing themselves as a member of the AME or BME church, um, you're obviously looking at an African-American, probably someone whose family uh, was in this group of uh, uh, fugitive slaves or ex-slaves or uh, free blacks who had seen uh, sanctuary in Canada. Similarly, among the Baptists, um, often you, if they're in groups in places like Amherstburg um, or Buxton or Chatham, um, communities where there are St. Catharines, places where there are a lot of African-Americans, African-North Americans, then once you get into the church records and into the genealogies, because a lot of these cities have really good uh, genealogy libraries, um, you can find individuals and see where they are. But what I found on the Canadian side is they have really good records for when people were in Canada, but if they were to move away, mm -hmm. the records stop. You know, similarly in the United States, the records really reflect people in the United States, not necessarily border crossings, because those were not, we don't have good records for that before the 20th century. Um, and, mm -hmm. and then, you know, so someone would be in a community in, in the United States and they'd also disappear. So when people disappear from the census on one side or the other, I'm looking for them on the other side. I'm trying to make those connections. And I do have some records like church records, um, fraternal organization records, um, and Civil War pension records that are able to uh, cross over the border and that the communities I can see in those records are helping me get a sense of the larger networks involved. Right, and that, it's really good to hear that, that, you know, some of the Civil War records are of help to you 
and finding that information. Now, can you give us an idea of approximately how many African and North Americans uh, returned to fight in the in the Civil War? Right. So I uh, worked on trying to come up with a, a new master list um, with Richard Reed, a professor in Canada, who published a book called African Canadians in Union Blue, Volunteering for the Cause in the Civil War uh, last year. And so he comes up with a number of around 600. Um, you have African North Americans who are in the Navy from the very start of the war. Uh, you have a number of African North Americans in the 54th and 55th Massachusetts, um, as well as in a number of the other U.S. Colored Troops units. Um, they tend to be concentrated in the units that were organized in places like Detroit and Buffalo, because obviously that's uh, closer to Canada. Um, but you do find mm-hmm. people who are Canadian and then even other people who are claiming to be Canadian in loss of those colored troops regiments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what else can you tell us about what you found in those records of the USCTs? Yeah, so um, some of what you see are pretty remarkable if you're used to looking at those pension files and seeing uh, kind of normal stories of African Americans living in the United States. Uh, you see pension files where people are having their checks sent to Canada. I mean, people are living in Windsor or people are living in Toronto, um, and they are able to get their pension checks sent to Canada. There's a period where the U.S. government wants all of the uh, doctors and other people who are signing affidavits to work with the consuls in these towns. So there's a relationship with the U.S. consuls. Uh, for veterans living abroad, but there are both white and black veterans living really throughout the world and receiving pension checks. Um, And uh, because obviously Canada is close to the United States, there are a number of them there. Some of them are people who moved to Canada after the war who had not been there before, but most of those that I see have some relationship to families in Canada before or to the Great Lakes region, right? So they might have been in Ohio and now they're going to be in Ontario. Um, They might have been in Michigan, and now they're going to be in Ontario. Um, Those are the sorts of connections that I've found in the pension records. Mm -hmm. And so what other sources, and, you know, this is something that would be very uh, helpful to all the genealogists who are doing this research, but what kind of sources in addition to the Civil War pension records were you able to find uh, information? Well, a number of uh, the of black towns in Canada have genealogical societies that have uh, good records. Either Now they exist either in public libraries or in museums. Um, there's a museum in Amherstburg um, and another one in Chatham and another one in Buxton. Each of them has a library that has um, extensive family trees from the individuals from their regions. Um, in St. Catharines, which is in the Niagara Falls region, um, there's another large uh, collection of genealogical records Um, from that area. That's held in the public library. Um, I would say, in general, these tend to be family trees with with sort of a little little information here and there. Um, I'm trying to do what I can to build out the story from there and sort of get a sense of what were these people doing? Why, you know, why are they moving? Why does someone arrive from the United States? Why does someone leave for the United States? Um, But there's sort of the basic records of getting a sense of the names and the dates are there. Um, just like other genealogical work, obviously there are cemeteries to go to, there are church records to look at, there are wills. Um, those have all been really good resources 
There's also collections in the archives of Ontario, um, the provincial archives. Um, there's a collection of a man who had been a Freemason historian in Canada, um, Alvin McCurdy. And so uh, he was connected to lots of things for African-Canadian communities. And in his collections, he has lots of proceedings and minutes from um, Prince Hall Mason groups all over and other fraternal groups all over Canada and into the Midwest and other parts of the United States as well. And so you can see some of those connections, the way names link from one to the other in his collections. And that's been a real valuable resource. Um, the, one, the one group we haven't talked about yet is there's actually a group of African North Americans in British Columbia also. That, uh, people who had been in California for the gold rush then went to Victoria and Vancouver, British Columbia, um, and a number of them got involved with politics. And so there's a whole set of um, naturalization documents where they sort of uh, have allegiance to the queen, um, and then they're able to get involved with politics in British Columbia. And so that's a whole other fascinating set of documents out in British Columbia that I've had a chance to look at as well. Yes, it sounds fascinating, too. Can you give us some examples of just exactly what what kind of stories or what kind of information you've actually observed in those records? Sure. Um, so some people who, who make this border crossing are, are famous names that we would know. Um, for example, Marianne Shad Carey uh, is very, uh, a famous journalist um, and activist. Uh, she is active in the 1850s in Canada, um, in, uh, in the, the Buxton and Chatham area, and then in the Windsor-Detroit area. Um, after the war, she decides to move to Washington, D.C., um, where she continues to fight for African-American rights. Um, she even, she, in the 1870s, she's talking about D.C. statehood. Um, she gets a degree at Howard, and, and some of her papers are at the library at Howard now. Um, and she was a place where people from the African-North American community the ties to Canada, they would often stay at her house when they were in Washington. So she becomes a node for these people moving through. Um, Martin Delaney also was able to uh, pursue his political agenda by being in Canada before the war. And he starts to think about how, how does the African-Americans, should they live in the United States or should they sort of seek a wider African politics? Um, that work, I think, is also helped by his time there. But there are lots of you know, very. You know, I talk to people who, whose families made this this crossing between the U.S. and Canada. They tend not to be very impressed with their own stories. They say things like, "Well, you know, yeah, he went to Detroit, but it was just to get a job, right? Like he, his family was still in Canada, but he he just went to you know work for Ford Motor Company or whatever it happened to be." And I'm interested in those stories too. It's not just about the big political leaders. I'm interested in the people who went to the United States for school or uh, decided to go to Canada to find someone to marry or, um, you know, we're moving for a job. Um, for example, some of the people in British Columbia um, in the next generation, they found jobs in uh, the railroad system or in hotels in places like Portland and Seattle. So um, I'm tracking all kinds of stories and I want to kind of create a, a giant group portrait of all these African North Americans thinking about what were the reasons people crossed the border and what does it tell us about, African-American life in the late 19th century that it's not just about the South and the North, it's about this wider world um, that includes Canada as well, not to mention you know, places like Liberia and Haiti that also had African-Americans moving there in this period. Right, and I'm hoping that 
some of the chatters and some of the people on the phone will actually call in to just share uh, what they have found out about their family members. Because, as you said, I mean, it's just not the politics, and they're not as impressed that about their family members and what they did. But really, there's a story there, and it's a story that should be shared with all. Well, I know that you you have an article, and it's called The Union's Fake Canadians. So tell us about this article and what you're talking about. Sure. So the way I found this topic was when I was in St. Louis researching my book about how St. Louis fits into the greater story of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, I came across a list of U.S. colored troops who had signed up right there in Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis. And um, in the list, there was a little asterisk by a few names, and it said, you know, Native of Canada for four of them, and it said Native of Jamaica for another. And I thought, okay, that's sort of interesting. It's interesting that somebody somehow made it from Jamaica or Canada all the way to St. Louis just to sign up for the U.S. Colored Troops. And I kind of put it away, something I was going to look at later. Um, but I kept thinking about it, and it sort of led me to this project to think about how many people cross the border, how are we going to find them, um, what can we make of them. And so I was able to get into the pension files and into the regimental files and other things at the National Archives. And what I found is that those individuals who are claiming to be from Canada are actually not from Canada at all. And, you know, they tell when they sign up, it's sure enough says Canada next to their name, but later on, when they're seeking pensions and they have to work documenting their life and show people who knew them, um, they talk about how they're really from Kentucky or they're really from Missouri. Um, and there's a question for the examiners in the pension process, you know, why is it that you were claiming to be from Canada? And so, I, you know, there's going to be a whole chapter on the estate Canadians in my project um, because what it's reflecting is the way in which if you were a foreigner, you could have a larger bounty um, rather than just joining the army under the normal system. And also, if you were uh, enslaved by someone who was considered a loyal union slaveholder, um, you were not going. You were not free, right? You were not going to be freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, and you were not free to join the army without permission. And so, um, in that period, people, if they suddenly, you know, had to had run away and to join the army, they could no longer be, you know, Albert Johnson from Kentucky. They needed to be, you know, Samuel Jackson from Canada. And so you see those transformations. People are changing their name. People are changing where they're from. And when it comes time to get a pension, that becomes a problem because they need people who knew them under both names to kind of link the two stories together because they don't have fingerprints and the kind of stuff we might use today. Um, but it, it's a fascinating window into the way which slavery works in Union states uh, to create these fake Canadians uh, who then go to join the Army. Well, now that is quite interesting because I've read a lot of pension records. I haven't seen any any fake Canadians in those pension records. Can you give us an idea of just how many you have observed? So what I've seen is out of this around 600 uh, real Canadians that, that Richard Reed has found, um, there are probably about 100 that have a pension record. And I'd say that of the kind of larger pool of people who were marked Canadian um, but turn out to be fake Canadians, um, I'd say we've found maybe 100 or so, 
Um, and of those, I've seen tension records for maybe 50. So they're, they're in there. I mean, they're, they're, you have to kind of know what you're looking for. But there are, if it's someone who claims to be from Canada and they're from a unit from Missouri or from South Carolina um, or somewhere that was quite far from Canada, those are the ones who, looking through, uh, some of them it's just unclear based on the records whether they're actually Canadian or not. Um, but some, it becomes very clear that they weren't Canadian, um, and though they did tell the Army that they were. And then they have really fascinating files where they try to explain that experience uh, to the pension officers so that they're able to get a pension. Yes, I can just imagine, especially when they have to uh, have individuals come in and vouch for them. Uh, and how, how do they get away with that? I mean, are the pen, have you observed those pensions being denied? Yeah, there are definitely ones where there people write back and they say, well, you know, according to our records, you were from Canada, you know, where is your documentation? And that's the last thing in the file, right, where some people just mm-hmm. seem to give up. Um, others, though, you see, I mean, there's a really fascinating case. Um, I can't remember whose file it is right now, but um, there's one where basically the examiner is saying, look, it makes sense that the white, uh, the white officers in this U.S. Colored Troops group would be happy to write down Canada or Jamaica where they happen to be, even if they really knew it wasn't true, right? That you have, you have people who have some very strange ideas about where in Canada they're from. Like, for example, one was asked when he signs up, you know, where in Canada are you from? And all he can come up with is Canada. So they write down oh, Canada, wow. Canada, right? So it suggests that there's some knowledge that these people may not actually be from Canada, um, but they're using yes. the excuse of being Canadian as a way to escape their local circumstance and join the U.S. Army. Wow. Now, that is fascinating. I I would love to read some of those files just to see uh, what they have to say. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come right back and continue this discussion. Just a quick break. Have you thought about a genealogy institute to learn the right way to conduct research on black family history or genealogy? (laughs) Are you stuck in where to go next for your own research or for a client? If so, then Maggie, the Teaching Institute, is for you. Maggie, M-A-A-G-I, is the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute, now in its fourth year, and this year will unfold in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Maggie is the only multiple-track institute for African American genealogy methods. From July 12th to the 14th, Maggie will take place at the Genealogy Center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Join the faculty and your colleagues for the Maggie experience that can change the trajectory of your work. That's Maggie, the Teaching Institute. For more information, visit the website at maagiinstitute.org. Okay, well, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. 
All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stretcher.com. So you have been listening to Dr. Adam Aronson discuss African North American genealogy across the U.S.-Canada border. So let's go back to you sharing with us more information to help us understand what type of situations we are dealing with when we're talking about Canada and what else you feel people need to know. Right. Thank you very much. Um, I'll say part of how I started to figure out that there was a community to find here. Um, Because if you're born in the United States and you escape to Canada, and then you come back to the United States, when you appear in the United States census, they only ask for birthplace. They don't ask where else have you lived. So there's nothing in the record of the individual that's going to tell you this is someone who spent part of their life in Canada and they've crossed back, right? So if you don't really know exactly who you're looking for, um, you can't find them that way. But what I have been able to do in the U.S. census is that if you look for children, who are marked as black or mulatto, um, and who are born in Canada, suddenly you you find these families, right? If you look in the 1870 census, for example, you can find thousands of families who have children who are born in Canada, even though the parents were born in the United States. And those people are are really how I've been able to build a list of the individuals I'm starting to look for in these sources. Um, Because uh, to me, it says those parents are the people who left the United States, went to Canada, and came back. And the census doesn't mark them directly, but this mark on their children showing that their children were born in Canada, that gives us the opening uh, to looking at these records. Hmm. And I've, n- I've never thought of doing that, but you're right. Look for where the children were born. That will give you a good idea. Any other tips or clues that we should perhaps look for? Um, another thing linked to that is that in the U.S. census, they tend to just write Canada, right? So they're not very specific. Similarly, in the Canadian census, when you have um, African Canadians, they just write United States a lot of the time. Sometimes they might write, you know, birthplace Virginia or birthplace um, Kentucky, but almost always it just says United States. So it really requires you to pull together those records if if people were not you know, we're, we're actually on the U.S. Census before they went to Canada or if they go back, you have an opportunity to see where they were actually from. Similarly, if they were in Canada during a census year, which is not the same as the U.S. year, but it's the year after, um, then you have the opportunity to see where in Canada they are. Um, and there actually is a good genealogical book for the kind of high point, at least in the Canadian census, the 1861 census. Um, there's a man named Barry Christopher Noonan, who put together a compilation called Blacks in Canada 1861 um, that tries to pull everyone out of the census who was marked uh, as African-American and have them all in one document. On the other hand, a lot of my friends who work in black Canadian genealogy will tell you that Noonan missed people because the census missed people because people were living in communities where they weren't marking them by race. For example, a number of the very elite um, African Canadians in Toronto who owned land or were lawyers, one was a doctor, um, lots of 
prominent members of the community, um, they were not being kind of marked by race in that way, and so not all of them are included in Noonan's list. So it's not a perfect document, but it is a place to start in thinking about where are these people. Now, is Noonan's list online? Uh, how will we get access to his list? So it's a, the way I've seen it is a, is a self-published book. I mean, it, I think it runs, you know, five or 600 pages. Um, it's a big book. Uh, and the, the version I have was published in Madison, Wisconsin in 2000. Um, I think I've seen it pop up on, uh, you know, used books, websites, places like that. Um, it would be great to have it digitized, but I have never seen it digitized. Um, similarly, mm -hmm. there's actually a list of uh, African Canadians that served in the U.S. Colored Troops that had been published in uh, a genealogical newsletter um, by a man named Tom Brooks up in Canada. Um, Mr. Brooks has passed away, um, and there was a kind of uh, uh, printed version of the list that, was, um, that I saw in the library in St. Catharines, but I haven't seen a, a full list on the website. But if you look around for Tom Brooks and African Canadians in the U.S. Colored Troops, there are sort of versions of the list, earlier versions that are that were on some of his websites that I've still been able to find um, up there. So there's definitely not a kind of there's not a one-stop shop uh, for the genealogical works on the web, but I think there are pieces of it that are there um, as well as in these libraries. Okay, so uh, there's a question they want. Okay, we have Tom Brooks, African Canadians in the U.S. Colored Troops. Is that correct? Right. Right. And like okay. I said, I think okay. that if you if you look around for it, you'll find parts of his list on the web. Um, but I, I have a copy of the full list that was published in one of his newsletters, um, I think in the 1990s, but I haven't seen it um, put up the whole list on the web anywhere. But people can definitely mm. contact me, um, and I can help them search out some of this information. Right, right. Well, is there any other information that you feel would be helpful uh, to the listeners as they uh, try to pursue their genealogical research across the U.S.-Canada border? Well, the, the place that I've really found uh, the largest community around these questions is that a number of the communities in Canada um, have homecoming celebrations. Um, the Buxton okay. Homecoming, which is over Labor Day, is a place where family comes from throughout the U.S. and Canada um, who have ties back to the Buxton community in the 1850s and 1860s. And I found lots of people who have a really deep knowledge of their own family genealogy as well as records um, on, you know, families that their family married into or went to church with. Um, so you, you find lots of people who are very dedicated uh, at these homecomings. There, there have been homecomings over time in Amherstburg and Windsor, um, in the St. Catharines region, um, the Buxton one, I think, is currently the largest, but um, some of the other ones are uh, Chatham also. Uh, they've been able to, to start reinvigorating these, uh, building great things in their museums. So I think that that's really encouraging that if you know what community in Canada you have a connection to, there are definitely records on the Canadian side about the bigger communities. Um, the communities, for example, out in British Columbia or the communities in Alberta that are formed in the 19-teens and 20s, um, those communities, I think, um, people are a little bit further behind, but there is an effort right now, the Hogan's Alley community in, um, in Vancouver or the Amber Valley uh, group in Alberta, people are, are pulling together those records 
and trying to get a sense of who was this community, who's connected to it, and, and what can we see now as well. Okay, and then there's a, a question coming out of the chat room. Is there any study on blacks in Canada who arrive from certain cities in the United States? And then they go on to say, for example, if one was helped to escape from Pittsburgh, was there a certain destination that they would have had which may have differed from an escapee from Maryland? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. Um, and I'd say that there is some of that information out there now. Um, Cheryl LaRoche has a, a new book about Underground Railroad um, in the Midwest. Um, it focuses on Indiana, Illinois, but I think, you know, Pittsburgh is sort of on the edge of that enough to be part of the story. Um, what you see also is that uh, there's a woman named Guillaume Petrine who's been studying um, connections between Virginia, three communities in Virginia that relocated to Toronto. Um, so there's a deep connection there that she's been researching. Um, we haven't also said anything about the communities in the maritime provinces, right, in uh, Nova Scotia, uh, and Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland, those the African Canadians there tended to be people who had left the United States um, with the British Army, either at the Revolution or uh, with the War of 1812, um, people who had sought their freedom not through the U.S. government but actually against the U.S. government. Um, and they have a whole other kind of story. Um, Harvey Amani Whitfield um, has written a book about that community and it gets a good sense of the allegiances and the connections. There are a lot of connections between um, those maritime provinces and Boston. Um, and Stephen Kantowitz has a book about the Boston African-American community um, called, I think it's called More Than Freedom. Um, and that that also ties in to questions of, of politics and community in the Northeast. Um, most of what I've been looking at is in the Great Lakes region and in British Columbia, um, because those are people who are moving basically because of the fugitive slave law and the Dred Scott case and then are coming back um, without being in Canada sort of for generations, um, the way the people in the Maritimes, you know, if they move in the 1780s or 90s, by the 1860s they've been in Canada a very long time. So I think they have a slightly different relationship uh, to the United States in this later generation. That's right. Well, I want to encourage individuals who would like to call in uh, 646-200-0491. Please feel free to call in and uh, ask a question or make a comment, especially if those of you who have had family members in, in Canada, if they're still in Canada and you want to share your family story, feel, please feel free to call in so that we can hear what you have to say. Now, I understand, Dr. Aronson, that you are hoping to find individuals who can share more about the, the family. So tell us more about your research and what you're looking for. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely trying, like I said before, to move from the big, famous political names into the, the kind of common stories of crossing the border. Um, I've found information about individuals who went to work in hotels in Wisconsin out of Canada, um, and I've been doing some research as to why were these luxury hotels interested in hiring black Canadians rather than African Americans. Um, I found information about some of the first African-American teachers um, in places like Detroit and Chicago 
uh, in the school system, people who fought to integrate the schools. A lot of them seem to have ties to Canada. Um, and I think a lot of the individuals who were in these communities before the Great Migration, right, that World War I really changes this because it brings a lot of um, African-descended people from the Caribbean into Canada. And we know mm-hmm. the story of how the Great Migration in that period through the Depression changes the black communities of the North. But I think if you look right. at the black communities between 1860 and 1915, um, the individuals in these communities, a lot of them had ties to Canada. Uh, people would come to, you know, to, to go to school to become a better Sunday school teacher or to become a minister um, or to, you know, to work for the Ford Motor Company, as I mentioned before. Um, there's a large bank in Chicago, the Binga Bank, and the Binga family has connections uh, in Ontario. Um, so I'm finding lots of, lots of businesses, lots of individuals um, who have these connections, and they don't always mention it, right? They didn't always talk about how they had spent time in Canada. So I'm trying to help bring that part of the story back into the picture because, like I said, the, the census records just ask for birthplace. So if you don't know somebody has those ties to Canada, it can be easy to miss it unless you're really looking carefully. Right, and it, and it could be a lost story. Well, uh, another question coming out of the chat, what about land ownership? Can we track any of these folks by way of Canadian land records? Yeah, so the, the Buxton community has a specially good record. Um, that the, it was established by a white minister who had, who had t- taken slaves um, into Canada and then freed the slaves and then set them up on, on farms. And in that area, sort of between Chatham, which is just north of Buxton, into Buxton, into some of the communities around it, there are really good land records, um, and there, the, the museum in Buxton has charts, you know, showing sort of who owned this parcel and, how, how was it transferred among family members or when people got married or when people left the community? Um, so there are. They're very good land records. Um, some of these libraries have, um, you know, binders of wills as well where you get some of that property information as well, um, especially about, about farmland. Um, so I, I have seen that material there. Also in British Columbia I've seen wills of members of the, the African North American community there as well. Right. So do you have a timeline uh, of which you are trying to collect as many stories as possible? Well, you know, being being a, a professor, I have to balance my, my research with my teaching and, and everything else that's going on. Um, I, I imagine I'm going to be working on this project uh, well into the next decade. Um, so I'm just – I'm really oh, at the beginning okay. of it. So, yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely – interested in talking to people but you know i'd say at least at least until you know 2020 2021 i'll be collecting information and trying to get it all together maybe even longer so i'm it's it's there's no rush i guess but i would like to to hear from people and help people learn more about their own stories uh, as well as what i can say about how it fits into these larger patterns right right well is there any other information that you would like to share with us tonight um, I'm trying to think of what what might be useful to to mention as well. I mean, I'd say that that there are these nodes for for the geography of African North America, right? So there's some places that, where the communities were that might be well known. But then I'm finding it, even in the United States, uh, there are kind of nodes like uh, in Xenia, Ohio, for example, um, because of the the school there, because of Wilberforce you had a number of 
African North Americans coming there uh, for school or marrying someone who was at school there. And so you find these, these pockets, um, they're areas of Detroit where a lot of the people had come out of Ontario and decided to live uh, all, all in the same sorts of streets. Um, similarly, in, in the Niagara Falls region, right, that many people are in St. Catharines on the Canadian side, but in places like Rochester um, and Lockport, there are communities of African North Americans who are maintaining that connection even though they're back in the United States. So um, that's one of the things I'm looking at, right, that if someone in the community you find uh, has a tie to Canada, it might be a good hint to look for whoever you're looking for in the Canadian records as well, because the, those those ties may be not just one person, but but part of a whole network of people working together. Right, it could be a whole community. You're right. Now, uh, someone has asked you once again to repeat your time period of what you're looking for uh, as far as stories. What is the time period again? Right. So. Uh, the way I'm defining that the African North Americans I'm looking for is that they were alive uh, during emancipation, right? So I, I'm looking for people who in, in 1865, um, whether they were one year old or whether they were 80 years, years old, um, you know, and that moment of emancipation at the end of the Civil War is, I see that major turning point that says, you know, that, that slavery won't return. And so there isn't that reason to stay in Canada um, and sort of escape from slavery. So um, that's, that's the, the way I've thought about it. So I've thought about people back into about the 1850s, a little into the 1840s, and then forward into the 1930s, right? Because someone who was very young in the 1860s um, could, be, could, could be alive and still, you know, part of uh, an active community in the 1930s. So I'd say roughly 1850 to 1930 is what I'm finding. Um, some people, you know, if they're born in 1870 in Canada, okay, they're not actually alive in emancipation, but they're still part of the story. So I'm, you know, I'm a little flexible at this point with it, but I'm, that's the period I'm really looking at. Um, as I said, the people who come after World War I, um, that's really a, a different story, I think. Um, and similarly, right. the people mm -hmm. who come before the 1840s, you know, who come to the Maritimes, that's also a different story. So I'm trying to just tell this story that's mostly in the late 19th century. The late 19th century. Okay. Now, there's a question about were there African Americans working with Indian agents like Alexander McKee? So, and I mean, I, I have heard that name, and I have to think a little more about when we're talking about. Um, what you do find in the records, for example, I, I found a whole group of people being marked in the U.S. Census, um, and the system was sending them back to me being marked mulatto. M uh, in in North Dakota, um, and I thought that's sort of unusual. And then I looked through the name, and it was clear that the local census state keeper wasn't using M for mulatto; he was using it for Métis, right, which is the Canadian term for people of mixed race, uh, European and uh, Native American descent. So you know, this, yeah. you had a lot of Native American families and Native American names. On the other hand, you actually have Native Americans who are serving in the U.S. Colored Troops that I found as well. So, you know, at some level you're saying, oh, that's a different story that doesn't really fit. But then if you're looking at it from the colored troops piece, there actually are Native Americans who end up in those units, um, either because they actually have African blood or because they, that's where they were able to join the Army uh, effort. 
So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the pension files are full of, you know, fascinating stories and just all the, all the, all the different ways people were able to live their lives in that period um, that we don't always remember. Right. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about church records. Tell us a little bit more about those church records. So um, the, you have uh, AME churches and then what they call BME, the, the British Methodist Episcopal Churches, which are essentially the Canadian version of the AME. Um, and and I found records from, you know, church uh, social groups. I found records from church leadership. Um, and I, I found there's often a lot of uh, overlap between the various power structures in these small black communities, right? So the people who are in charge in the church may also be in charge in the fraternal organization, and they may also be in charge, you know, in the schools or uh, in other, other groups uh, that you might try to track people. So um, in different communities, I found different kinds of records, um, you know, some in the church records I've mostly seen, you're looking at marriage records, uh, funeral records, sometimes membership lists uh, from the churches. Um, a number of the, the community churches were able to create uh, anniversary volumes, you know, in the 1920s or 30s or 40s. So even if there's not records that are really go back to the 19th century, they did what they could to collect those materials, you know, say the 50th anniversary of the church, whatever it happened to be. And so we get a glimpse of that material um, and uh, there is a good book called I think it's called the Afro-Canadian Church um, I'm, I'm not remembering right now who it's by um, but it does give a good overview of the, the, the picture of what the various church movements in Canada look like um, and who the leadership was in these communities why? Now we have a, a caller on the line. Uh, caller four four three. You're live. You have a question or a comment? Hi, uh, this is Catherine Meehan Blunt. Um, it's great hearing you this evening. Um, I'm calling because I have family uh, from both my maternal and uh, paternal side from Canada. We go back in Canada to the early 1800s, and most of my family is still there. Um, but one thing I've noticed in my research is that while both my mother and father's families were from the general Chatham, Ontario, Canada area, they were mm-hmm. very, very distinct communities. One was a community that settled in Dover, um, and those were families that were primarily African and uh, Native American and came from primarily uh, Delaware and um, North Carolina, whereas my father's family settled primarily in Harwich County and to some degree in Raleigh. Can you talk about the um, different communities and how uh, people traveled or migrated from one location to the other? At one point, some of my family was in the Queens Bush, for instance. Um, And I have found in my research that it's sometimes very difficult to track people from community to community within Canada. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I'm glad you're able to call in tonight that there are, you know, as we were speaking, I'm thinking of all the other small communities I haven't mentioned, right? So there's there's a community in Oro, uh, which is linked to that Queen's Bush 
uh, area. And then when you're talking about distinctive communities, um, Josiah Henson was in Dresden, um, mm-hmm. which is another mm-hmm. community north of Chatham. Um, and then there are people in Hamilton. Like, you know, the, the list goes on. There were a lot of uh, communities, um, not all of which maintain an African-Canadian presence now. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been biased towards the ones where the communities are still there. And so it's been able to get the resources a little better. But on the other hand, I know of uh, having been working in this, I'm finding archaeologists um, and genealogists uh, who specialize in each of these little communities. And so, I, you know, for example, I know someone who's, who's you know, working on creating a kind of master list, a master set of families for the Queens Bush region. Um, similarly, for blacks in Quebec, we haven't talked about French-speaking Canada, but there were um, African Americans, uh, African North Americans in Quebec, um, and yeah, there, there. But as you said, that a lot of these communities have were, were the product of certain paths, of certain either word of mouth or certain moments of migration. And so, um, you know, I don't think uh, that we've done enough research to see all those paths, but there are some of them. Um, and for example, uh, I'm not sure if it's in your family or not, but um, I think there is there are Mehans who end up going from the the Chatham-Buxton area into the black towns of Oklahoma uh, Nebraska. later. So, Nebraska, okay, so Nebraska, yeah. yeah. So, and then and some people from those black communities end up in Alberta, right? So that there are, you know, it, it's, I think it shows that uh, fluidity in a way that I think most people, when they think about African Americans in this period, don't, don't think of them as being so mobile and moving around in these communities so much. Um, and those are the kinds of stories I'm working to tell. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thank you for calling in. Okay, well, we're getting close to the end of the show, and if we don't have any callers and any other questions, I'll just kind of touch bases with the chatters. Do you all have any other questions that you would like to have answered before we get our closing remarks from Dr. Aronson? And right now I don't see any questions, Dr. Aronson. So you want to give us some closing remarks before we uh, close out tonight? Sure. Well, I wanted to thank you again for having me on. And I really encourage anyone um, who has family ties that cross the border um, who, or think they may, they may have folks who are in these communities, um, whether it's Ypsilanti in Michigan um, or Toledo or Lockport, um, you know, there are communities in the U.S. That, that had very strong ties to Canada, and it was easier in the 19th century to cross the Great Lakes because there were steamboat ferries all the time across the lake. Now you have to drive all the way around or fly. Um, so there were certain kinds of connections that were much stronger then than they are now, and that's part of what this research is working to recover. Um, similarly, I think it gives us a sense of, of the way in which Harrison, right, people had lived in Canada under British rule um, with a certain vision of citizenship, um, a, a, a society that was trying very hard not to think about race, not to write down people's racial characteristics in some settings, though, of course, in other settings that was still relevant. Um, and then in the United States, people who were able to move back and see Reconstruction as this great moment of promise and then watch those gains fall away. Um, what I found is there's one, there's one memoir by a man named Mifflin Gibbs who had been in, in British Columbia and had found some success there. Uh, he's actually able to go on 
and be um, uh, an ambassador um, for Theodore Roosevelt, one of the African-Americans who the Republican Party sort of gives, gives a government job by sending as an ambassador to an African country. Um, and he writes about how, you know, he had escaped the U.S. Uh, out, of, out of San Francisco, and he felt like his rights had been completely denied. And now he was returning to a country that finally had given him the nobility of an American citizen. And he wasn't, he sort of re- tries to reflect on what does it mean now to, to return to the country of birth with a new status. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the questions I'm trying to ask. Like, what, was Canada a place where people were able to gain certain skills, you know, whether it was literacy or polit- political leadership um, or just a refuge? Um, was it a place they saw as home or just a temporary place to stay? Um, you have lots of different stories, people who saw Canada as their permanent home, people who saw it just as a place they wanted to be for a little while. Um, those are all stories I want to build into this, this kind of massive group portrait of these African North Americans. Right. So this is going to be uh, some exciting research to to read. And uh, we do have just two quick questions coming out of the chat before we end the show tonight. Uh, the first question was, there any paperwork documents created? And this is kind of what you're, sounds like you're trying to determine. When they came back to the USA, uh, that's a question that was just asked. So I I think I think it's 1905, but it's definitely right after the turn of the 20th century. You finally get the U.S. government interested in registering people when they cross the U.S. border. Um, It's where a lot of our immigration records start getting much richer in that period too. But before that, there aren't records, and I assume also some of these people, for example, there are people who are working on those steamboats in the Great Lakes who are these African North Americans. And so they had relationships in both the U.S. and Canada ongoing, um, you know, that they would, uh-huh. they would be in both countries every day. And so, um, you know, I think it, you, you have to kind of have the government noticing someone as foreign and, and needing to be registered before you have good records. And, and for the 19th century, they don't exist. Okay, so they don't exist. And you mentioned uh, a Gibbs. Was it Mifflin Gibbs? Right. His, his full name is Mifflin Wistar Gibbs. So, uh, and okay. he writes what I think is the only uh, memoir of one of these African North Americans. It's called Shadow and Light, an autobiography with reminiscences of the last and present century in 1902. Um, but his mention of this time switching over the border is like a paragraph in the, in the course of a few hundred pages, mostly about his life before and after uh, Canada. Uh-huh. And then there's another question coming out. Uh <laughs> so we're not closing out until it's over, okay? Uh uh it would be good to hear about resistance of white Canadians to black presence there and the contribution that the attitude to people of African descent leaving Canada after the Civil War. Right. So, you know, that, that that's that's a big question um and and Part of how black Canadian stories are told is there are a lot of the same kinds of civil rights efforts in terms of um, trying to desegregate restaurants and schools, um, all the same kinds of uh, struggles happen in Canada as they happen in the United States um, in, the, in, the, in the similar period in the 1940s and 50s. Um, so the, the, 
there has been in the 19th century there was a sense that you know we were providing a refuge as a country uh, for these escaping slaves, but there there wasn't a sense that they were going to be treated in anything but a kind of very superficial legal equality. Um, and so a lot of the same sorts of prejudice are felt by these communities in Canada. Um, and it does, that is part of what leads some to return, that, that you do have individuals saying, um, look, you know, Canada isn't, isn't any better than the United States. Why don't we go back to where we were in the United States and fight for these rights? Um, on the other hand, you have other people. Um, Anderson Abbott is a very prominent doctor in Toronto who, who writes a, a lot all the way through the, um, the, the U.S. war with the Spanish Empire in 1898 about how different it is for African Canadians and how proud he is to live under the British Empire, and the British Empire is much freer and it has a much wider understanding of rights from the king. Um, you know, he, he has a very broad view of how being a, a British subject is much freer than being an American citizen. But, um, I, you know, I'd say that there were people willing to debate him on that point all the way along. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we, you certainly have given us uh, food for thought. Uh, it, it certainly has opened up another area for us to look at Canada, to look at across the border, what was happening, also to look at those Civil War uh, pension records, and perhaps we may begin to see some of those fake Canadians in those pension records. So I want to thank you, Dr. Adam Aronson, for joining us tonight, and for everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also, please remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Aronson. Good night. Thanks so much. Good night.